It's the Life of Gem live video podcast. This is season three, episode yeah, eight, or should I go eight? And I call this episode writing about the world, the environment, and you'll see why tonight we have a big treat. We have the author of this amazing new book by Bamboo Dark Press, After the Dome Fire, Ruth Nolan, professor, writer, um, anthology editor is here. Give us a wave, Ruth. Uh, Ruth has been my friend for years. She was actually one of my first writing facilitator teachers for Inlandia many moons ago at the Riverside Library. So uh, thank you, Ruth, for that. I'm going to read her bio and then we'll bring her in. And just for the record, I am wearing my Patty Smith t-shirt tonight because as you'll see, Ruth's book is all about the deserts and about Joshua trees even. So Ruth Nolan, who's pictured right here, is a professor of English and creative writing at the College of the Desert. She is the author of the just-released poetry book, It's So Epic, After the Dome Fire by Bamboo Dark Press. It just came out last month, I believe. It won an award. It won first runner-up for the Hillary uh, Gravendike Regional Poetry Book Award, and it won the Distinguished Book Award in the Independent Press Book Awards. Her writing has been most recently published in Boom, California. KCET Los Angeles, McSweeney's Joshua Tree, Where Two Deserts Meet, and Writing the Golden State, The New Literary Terrain of California, Angel City Press 2023. A California desert literature scholar. How cool is that? She's the editor of No Place for a Puritan, The Literature of California's Deserts, which was published by Heyday Books. She's the curator of the Humanities Project Fire on the Mojave. Stories from the deserts and mountains of inland Southern California, based in part, get this, on her personal experiences fighting wildfires for the U.S. Forest Service and BLM California Desert District. Her writing has been supported by residencies at Breadloaf Community of Writers by California Humanities, and she holds her MFA in creative writing from the University of California Riverside Palm Desert. She's the founder of the Inland Inlandia Institute Creative Workshop Program and leads community inclusive writing workshops for Desert Institute at Joshua Tree National Park, the Native American Land Conservancy, Conservancy and other organizations. She serves on the advisory board for Basin and Range Watch, a group advocating for preservation of the Mojave Desert wildlands. Welcome, Ruth. I'm so happy to have you on. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm really uh, You're an incredible podcast and you're working so hard, <laughs> so much for so many writers, as well as doing all of this amazing writing yourself and reading and just a really bright spot and star in our writing, our writing oh. diaspora here in the Southern California region and beyond. And we're going to talk about that. I mean, you are an IE girl, just like me, and you actually blurred my book and I appreciated that from you. So I'm going to have you start us out. People have to hear these poems in this book. We're going to talk all about them. So I'm going to put the camera on you. I'm going to mute me, but I'm right here in the background if you need me. So take it away, Ruth, and welcome. I'm so honored to have you Thank on. You. Listen in. Every I'm going to read a few poems from my book. And every poem has a theme, a metaphor, symbolism, and a relationship to wildfire. Mopping up. It's the most unraveled and well-paying job I've had, fighting fire in far-flung, fiery wilderness areas, in the San Bernardino Mountains, the San Gabriels, the Sierra, the gates of the wilderness, 
Trinity Alps. And most of the time I was the only girl on the crew, cutting fireline, stumbling on rocks, sucking down smoke. After a fire had laid down upon blackened meadows and burnt matchstick forests, our job was far from done. We hiked through baked potato hot, ankle deep ash to finish off dying wildfires, using our sharpened shovels to stir and sift through debris, slowly, oh so meticulously. We joked that incinerated animals were crispy critters, known in their former incarnations as kangaroo rat, Mojave green rattlesnakes, black-tailed jackrabbits. We struggled to keep pace in the odd, slowed-down underbelly of our once-so-lovely, if little-known, Golden State geographies, with lonely names in English to name a few. Rattlesnake Mountain, Horse Thief Spring, Last Chance Range, Grapevine Canyon, Wild Wash Road, Toro Peak. Above us, the whispered remains of trees lurked black and jagged, stripped of the dignity of their given names. Jeffrey Pine, Ponderosa, Western Sequoia, Sycamore, Pinion, White Fir, Incense Cedar, no more. The only name we had for them left was Widowmakers, ready to kill us with death blow limbs, ready to drop down. And at our feet, the complete bequeathing of the, fountain, the ladder fuels. Manzanita, Western Juniper, Coyote Brush, Poison Oak. So this is what I remember most vividly from my firefighting days. The endless mopping up, making sure the fire was put to bed. Soothing feverish brows of forsaken landscapes to cool them down. Tame them into domicile complicity at the ease of a nursery rhyme. That, and I remember how often the guys on the crew would ask me why I'd left my apron strings of domesticity to flirt with wildfire instead of with them. My second poem is Escape Route. My little daughter and I are back from a few years up in Shoshone. I'm pounding family pictures to the walls of our apartment in Joshua Tree, not far from where my daughter's father shot and killed his best friend. He went to prison, sentenced to life. He worked on fire camp crews. I'll claim the desk I left in his parents' garage when I left town the last time, running for my life. A well-made oak operation, cracked by the heat, but useful nonetheless. I'll sand the surface with a razor to reveal a deeper truth in the green. Shining, beautiful stories I want my daughter to inherit someday. The next poem is called Home Girl. The doctor yanked her from my womb, turned her belly up to the light. That July night when thunderheads pillared towards the glare of full desert moon. Lightning strikes, the chance of wildfire. Possibly flash flood. Because I have always inhabited deserts, I wasn't sure if I could teach her how to swim. Now she is 11 years old, just beginning to sprout little breasts that resemble dorsal fins. This daughter who I admit I once wished to have been born a boy. Each day she asked me to hook the training bra behind her back. I'm not sure who bought it for her. It wasn't me. She's a cool girl, beautifying herself with beaded jewels. Skimpy skirts, platform shoes, green lip gloss, borrowed from God only knows who. I have long since forgiven her for the scar slashed across my lower gut. The stingy kisses slurped across my cheek. The way fat mouth fish gasp for bugs hovering at the surface of the scurvy Mojave River. And each day I, when she goes to school, I sneak into her bedroom. Close the door. Find the jars of teddy bear bottle nail polish 
and with a surgeon's knife tip finesse, paint my own finger and toenails blue. But sometimes I use red, the color of flames. And there's one more poem that I will read to you um, before my interview. And this is um, a true story. Um, when I look out upon the desert landscape in the far East Mojave National Preserve, there is a place where a terrible wildfire burned in 2020, 43,000 acres. And it was once the largest Joshua tree forest in the world, not anymore. This is the largest Joshua tree forest in the world. It says a sign in the middle of the 43,000 acre dome fire burn zone. After the before song, after this, a domed landscape of Joshua trees torn up by a firestorm. After this, the high ridge for agave collecting has burned to a crisp. After this, it has been years since you saw a desert tortoise crawl. After this, the ruby-throated hummingbirds are desperate with thirst. After this, a young chuckwalla doesn't back down from its fierce rock. After this, the long-eared owls claiming their only tree by the petroglyphs portending death. After this, the rattlesnake shaman circle so hard to see it makes you cry. After this, the heat is killing more people this year than ever before. After this, the tender landscape, fragile, fragmented, and broken light. After this, people songs. One trail leading to and from another a broken start. After this, the fluid memory song in the Cottonwood Oasis where someone died at Barstow. After this, the first and only evening star remembered long before its white heart burns out. Wow, so beautiful. I hope that you all had felt like you had a little journey through the desert with all its wild and wooly and beautiful emotional spaces. Yeah, your your work is so emotional. These poems um, are so California in the best kind of way. Um, you say in that poem you just read, this is the largest Joshua tree forest in the world. That's the name of the poem. Um, after the before song, after this. It, this almost feels like a song to me. It's very so, musical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was kind of going for that. Um, I'm really playing a lot with repetition in my writing because I'm mm -hmm. also a little bit of a musician. Mm -hmm. I play a few instruments, not super well, but, um, and I sing, you know, I grew up being in school choirs and I've always wanted to be oh. a rock star. It's actually my, like someone posted on Facebook recently, you could, what would you, what was your dream job as a kid? I put rock star and people. Let's was, do oh, it. Let's start a band. <laughs> Inland empire girl. I'm yeah. I'm down. Count me in. <laughs> no. And I see that about your work. You know, your work is almost a hybrid in a way, a hybrid between memoir, poetry, and yeah. there's this lyricism and musicality mm -hmm. to all of it. And yeah. then you use, especially in this book, we're going to talk more about this, but you use photography. Did mm -hmm. Who did these pictures? Me. Wow. Said. Yeah. You know, um, my family, uh, my husband, um, and his mom, his mom has a house in Oak Hill. So we're always out in the high oh, desert. Right. And yeah. I love the Joshua tree. And and my friend Gina, um, who I've known for years, I went to UCR with her, um, Gina DeVore. She had an album called Orange Dreams. And on the cover of the album was a Joshua tree that mm -hmm. she put oranges on. Ooh. And uh, yeah, I've always, I've always loved that image. Um, so in the first poem of, of the book, Mopping Up, which you read, um, 
you talk about firefighting and and this is what i love about this book it really is a feminist uh a feminism kind of manifesto oh yeah absolutely yeah i mean you are a female firefighter and if that's not a man's world i don't know what is yeah and in that first poem you talk about firefighting the only girl on the crew sucking down smoke and that line i love that line it's a vulgar setting yeah where they're asking you you know i remember how often the guys on the crew would ask what would ask why i'd left my apron strings of domesticity to flirt with fire instead of with them well being a woman out there on largely male dominated crews Mm -hmm. made most of the men were very uncomfortable with it very uncomfortable. And that came through towards me in various ways, everything from hardcore sexual harassment to sexual innuendos to abuse, you know, like Ruth is going to do all the hard work at the station while the guys are in the air conditioned room waiting for a fire call. Um, And some men were very well-meaning, you know, why are you out here? You're just this beautiful young girl from a nice family. Show the picture. Oh yeah. This is too scary, too dangerous for you. I'm like, I grew up with three brothers. You're like, (laughs) wow. And you're tough. I mean, yeah. So, you know, it was everything, you know, and just to be like in that, that world and be as a woman, how you get objectified in various ways. Yeah. Your book deals a lot with that. And, you know, um, I find it interesting because as a criminal defense attorney, When Before I was in mental health court, when I was handling serious felonies and I was going to trials, some of these guys that you would have in the box, they'd be like old, wizened, hardcore prison dudes. And honestly, I would see them looking at women, checking them out in court, watching them in the high heels and bend over. And me, I always took a very male, I have male energy anyways, what someone might call it, male energy. And I was always like, hey, dude, what's up? Like I would lower my voice. I would dress like super, like, I don't, I don't get dressed up for court. I'm like in black pants, a black sweater and a black jacket every day. Like I could care less what I wear to court, to be honest, unless I was in trial, then I would wear fancy shoes because people did notice your shoes. The women would notice your shoes when you were in trial. But um, yeah, it is interesting, but they don't notice what a dude's wearing. But like, I, I think it's very interesting because this book is really challenging that perception of femininity as something um, weak, right? This is like, you're almost like a warrior. Yeah. Yeah. And like being in spaces where, and all women struggle with this, you know, in our society, where do we go? Where do we belong? How, where do we feel safe? What are we, are we supposed to be like just in a kitchen? We all, you know, women get that at all ages. Why didn't you have kids? Why do you have so many kids? How come you're not married? Why, why don't, why don't you leave the guy who's mean to you? Like, and my daughter now, she's a young mother and she's saying how much flack she gets. She can just pick up on it from people around her. You know, Yeah. she has four children and people ask me all the time, ask me, why is she having all those kids? When is she going to stop? I'm like, oh my God. Like, so, I mean, no matter what age you are as a woman, there's always this challenge to what you're doing and what your space is and where you're supposed to belong. Yeah, and kind of how so, you're perceived, your the ageism. You know, I'm 50. Yeah. People are always amazed. I'm 50. Why are you wearing that? Yeah. Why do, people ask me, why do you tell people your age? Because I don't care. I've yeah. earned every act a certain year way. I've lived. You should yeah. act a certain way because you're a certain age. You should wear uh-huh. a certain thing. You should belong here. You should go there. So maybe yeah. the fire crew thing is just a really hyperbolic, you know, exaggeration, very grossly underscoring that that conceit, you know, that we all deal with as women. 
Oh, so interesting. I just yeah. want to highlight that Francis T. Barella, Professor Barella from Mount Sac. She's an hi, anthropology Francis. professor. Hi, um, wrote, yeah, I read this beautiful poems. Reminds me of my first husband who was a firefighter. A nice change in perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate that because um, I'm actually trying to write a book. I am writing. It's coming along. Um, a prose memoir about my firefighting. Oh. And, you know, my research, what I find is a lot of books by men. And they all have a very heroic, you know, like mm. the publishers have spun the story, edited it to be very manly men. And then when yeah. I look on the news and see things about fires, they 99.9% of the time they are talking to men. It's usually white men. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's a lot of people out there that are not white men. I just had Dave Pelzer, who wrote a child called in on the show. A couple, yeah, I know um, him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a firefighter and he's actually kind of um, his demeanor is not your typical firefighter. Because he's very um, sweet, empathetic, yeah. kind of soft-spoken. So he, to me, kind of defied that um, macho right. kind of, yeah. oh, they call it um, uh, valiente in Spanish, like macho man kind of thing, right? Yeah. So, like, you know, where do we belong if we don't fit into a, a gender expectation? Mm -hmm. You know? And so. Yeah. Um, Have you had any firefighter? Female firefighters call you about this or female. No. Yeah, no. because you know who might identify with this even more? I was thinking about it, our female veterans, you know, um, that probably are dealing with a lot of the yeah. stuff that you're talking about in yeah. here. Yeah, definitely. And it probably, you know, obviously having probably having a lot more difficult. Um, I had worked with some of my college students. I've had several young women who were um writing about being sexually assaulted when oh. they were serving in you know Afghanistan. Yeah in the yeah. different military branches and yeah. evoking and processing their trauma through their writing. So I've worked with students, female students who are veterans. Yeah. Um, I had represented a few when I did veterans okay. court and I got to tell a you really, that, you know, Oh, well, as a that's a man's world, right? <laughs> that's yeah, not well, a man's you're world. Stuck there too. You can't just get yeah. off the fire and go home. But um, that was also another big issue is, you know, the woman on the, out on the fire, having to always be extremely wary of being in this, there are a lot of inmate crews and, you know, I was in one fire camp and the inmates overpowered some guards with ice picks that they got from the reefer truck. Oh, wow. And escaped. So, I mean, it's almost like you're a woman here. You're going to get, you know, you're in danger of being in this environment. So you, it's like a hyper dangerous in some ways. Oh, hyper dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's always really interesting. The There's male. a movie with Michelle Pfeiffer where there's a riot and uh, it's one of my favorite movies with her and Robert Redford. And I always think about that, like being a female reporter in a lockdown situation, you're in a much more being yeah. female, right? Being female in a male prison, being female in a male firefighter fire camp, right? These yeah. are people that yeah. are incarcerated and doesn't mean they're all dangerous at all. We're not saying that, but what I'm but, saying that if someone's going to get victimized, it's probably going to be the female, right? Yeah, 99% of the time. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you can't go to the bathroom alone in the fire camp. There has to be a guy go with you. That's another problem, you know, that you have to be, men have to protect you in an environment that where men are dangerous. That's very yeah. awkward. <laughs> so interesting. Well, let's change topics a little bit. I One of my favorite poems in this book is a poem called Home Girl that you read from. And it's really about maternalism. And you're talking about your daughter in this poem. Um, and you talk about she's 11, she's sprouting breasts. You talk mm -hmm. about her training bra. You talk about the scar across your gut. You know, you're doing these very vivid images of female 
um, having what a child takes, all this. Um, it's about mother nature, maternal maternalism, motherhood, mother earth, right? Talk about how the role of motherhood and mother earth kind of intersect in your book because it's there. Oh, that's a really good um, thing that you've noted. Um, well, definitely, once again, what is the role of a woman? What's What does it mean to be a mother? Um, my relationship with nature, and it gets increasingly so, is I feel like I'm hoping to nurture nature when I go out. So when I'm hiking, and I hike almost every day, I live in the desert. And oh, wow. it's a spiritual experience. I'm not just out there like playing around or trying to bag a peak. When I was younger, I was more that way. Like, I got to climb that mountain or I'm nobody, you know, I have to prove myself. But now it's like, you know, this is like a spiritual journey. I'm praying. I'm like mm. trying to talk. I mean, it sounds crazy, but. No, I love it. I'm acknowledging. I'm trying. People are rock stacking everywhere. That's like a little pet peeve of me, even though they're not supposed to, like in the national parks, stacking up rocks. And I spent a lot of time undoing those rock stacks, you know, wow. trying to help the earth not feel like somebody's come along and marked it up. So, you know, the themes of the book would talk a lot about sort of my own sense of sort of kind of being dropped in this timeless open space called the desert where there aren't a lot of wow. boundaries, you know, on the edges, the periphery of society and the established order. And just how do you negotiate that? My dad moved us from San Bernardino up there when I was like 10. Wow. And, and like, are you a California native? Yeah, I was born in San Bernardino. Wow. San my Bernardino. mom grew up in San Bernardino. My parents where, met. What part of San Bernardino? Um, I was born at St. Bernardine's Hospital. Oh! That's where my mom, when my mom recently got sick, they took such good care of her there. She almost passed away and they saved her life, you know? Yeah. My grandparents are buried in the mountain view right across the street. Oh, really? So, um, yeah, I'm definitely have my deep San Bernardino roots. And then we lived on Temple Street. Wow. And we moved to Rialto. That's where I was. Elementary school was Rialto. And then we moved oh. up to the desert. Like, what are we supposed to do up here? How old like, were you when you moved up to the desert? Um, we were, I was like 11, 12. Oh, wow. That was, so you Palm Springs area or further out? No, to the Mojave Desert up near Apple Valley, Victoria. Oh, you went high desert. Yeah, we started yeah. up there. Well, so, uh, I guess that there. must have been like in the 80s because that's when Al they no. created Apple Valley about like the all 70s. the housing. 70s late 70s um, late 70s yeah mm -hmm. yeah because I when I was in so when I was in high school in the mid 80s a lot of my friends from my junior high that were going to go to high school with us at Chafee ended up moving to Apple Valley yeah we and, had a big population growth yeah I'm, I'm 10 years older than you so okay um my family got there ahead of the curve mm-hmm and that exodus from the city is you know still happening and it we had it a is. massive surge with the pandemic like it feels like everybody in LA has moved to Joshua Tree and Palm Springs. Oh my gosh, I know. Really? I just and heard a couple. Else. It's crazy. It is, you know, and it's almost like, and we'll talk about this, you know, are, is the gentrification of Joshua Tree um, really horrific? Is this, you know, I go to yeah, Pappy and Harris all the time. I have friends who've been displaced, oh. homeless people, and people have been renting affordable housing cheap, have been pushed out. One of my friends who's actually from the IE. Um, he told me he's homeless and he has two teenagers Yeah, because he got pushed out of his affordable housing. Yeah. Um, and you can't buy land out there anymore. It's like gone uh, up even to buy a plot of land in Joshua. And a lot of it is um, Airbnb. Airbnb mm -hmm. has consumed a lot of the available inventory. Wow. But there's also, you know, just a lot of money pouring in and it's becoming like a little designer playground. Mm. 
So I have a lot of really resentment about it. Um, a lot of my friends are moving away. Yeah. People I've known for many years and it's really, really just splitting up and massively changing the community. Well, in a very, very fast manner. And, um, yeah, it's only in the last four or five years, right? It's, this isn't years. like, yeah. Yeah, since so the pandemic. It's um, a lot. And then what's funny is a lot of people I know that are from L.A. that move there, you know, they still want to, they're not, they really like L.A. still. And that, you know, five years ago, most of the people out there were just kind of out there full time. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot more like overlap between city and desert. So what does that mean? You know, I'm trying to kind of grasp that and articulate that in my writing. So it's like really a new chapter. But yeah, and I'm kind of a reverse snob. When I go to Pappy and Harriet's and Joshua Tree to see punk shows and stuff and uh, post-punk shows and country stuff, um, I always want to hang out with the IE people because I can sp- spot the LA people like a mile away. Are there any I'm IE like, people still going there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's so- one of my favorite venues. Me and my husband always rent the little motel right there. Oh, which do you? Is, oh, yeah, because we don't like driving down that hill at night. Yeah. So we're actually, believe but, it or not, going to see Adam Ant there next Thursday woo. in Joshua Tree. We're so excited. Wow. Um, but let's get back to your work. Yep. Well, I was um, going to say, you can't blame it on L.A. people. No, you Paul can't. McCartney playing there is what, that, that was a really big turning point in the changes in the high desert. Jackie was there, my twin. Well, I'm so jealous. I just want to scream. <laughs> her principal <laughs> actually go, let want- her take off. That was it. That was like a. That was the tip. The, the that was the tip point. because no one knew that people like the no Shades and the Pixies yeah. and the Replacements have it played there. It was a there. local place. So it um, was a local place, but they always had big place. names. They always had big oh, names. Yeah. I've been going there for years. Yeah. So yeah, blame Paul McCartney. So the LA people are off the hook. Beatles get another ding. Paul ding. McCartney. Paul McCartney. Yes. What have you done? At the end of the Home Girl, and we talked about this in the green room. You have this line that you say, sometimes I use red, the color of flames. Talk about the imagery of fire that is throughout this book for good reason. Talk about ecology. Talk about how these deserts are being decimated by both by man-made and natural causes, right? Or the intersection of the two. First of all, that poem, I would say, has a lot to do with confusion and uncertainty of identity and the role of mother. Mm. identity of what is, I mean, what does it mean to be a woman? The role of mother and daughter kind of being interchangeable. Mm. So I feel like that poem wanders a lot through all of that. And the weirdness of the mother going through her daughter's stuff when she's at school is, it is kind of creepy weird, but it's funny, (laughs) you know, like. And all mothers do it. I can tell you having a sister who has daughters. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then the daughter, you know, you see my favorite pair of shoes I'm looking for. My daughter still takes my stuff. I mean, I'm not mad at her. Well, I'm kind of mad at her. <laughs> you know, I bought these cute shoes and where are they? And like five years later, they're like in her closet at her house. Like you took those shoes. I was looking for them, you know, it's like, sorry. That's the problem with wearing the same size. I think yeah. <laughs> clothes, they disappear and I find them in her house years later, stuff like that. So that's always been a little weird, you know, a little back and forth, but like the whole theme of like the fire you know, since I have lived very closely to a remote rural setting for so much of my life, it's a big part of who I am. And just that time spent in that environment, hmm. like as you grow up in Apple Valley, when there's nothing out there, which I did, you don't go outside and go to the mall. You just go outside and start hiking a mountain. There's nowhere else to go. 
Yeah, there was no malls yeah. back then out there. There yeah, was we no We didn't have cars. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. So I left all my friends behind in the Inland Empire in the ninth grade or was it or eighth grade? Oh my God. It was so brutal, but I couldn't really see them very much. I would take the bus to go to the Swing Auditorium. My friend would always get tickets. There were so many great shows back then. Very lucky. Um, but mostly you just yeah, I know you're a there. music girl. You love your shows. Yeah. And, you know, we're stuck out there and you just have to go hang out and walk around in the desert. So the um, sense of feeling very affected by what happens to the earth, to the desert, mm. is very resonant with me. And then the impacts of fires really resonate because I used to do the work. I've, I've spent a lot of time in fire zones. You know, I've, I've been close to fire, you know, and that just never leaves you. I have a fire personality. How the firefighter state. You have to have a fire personality to be a firefighter. Is there a sense of adrenaline that you get when yeah. you're fighting a fire? It kicks in. Yes. So here's the difference. Most people see the fire and they run away from it. The firefighter sees it and wants to go run up to the fire. Oh, wow. It's so true. Like I see a fire break. I'm like, God, I guess I need to get up there. I should do something. <laughs> I feel like I need to get up there and like start working. I still feel that way. Wow. So, and also understanding the dangers that we live in here in this region with fire people living in the wilderness urban interface. I feel a responsibility to try to educate people. That's what my other project's about, the fire on the Mojave. Um, everybody has a fire story. Everybody that lives in our region has a fire, a wildfire story. Well, I have this to say. Even I have do. I have read a very many memoirs and there is a theme of fire in many memoirs. Frank McCourt, um, Allison Hedge Coke. Um, a lot of memoirists have a fire story. And I think it's because people are, number one, fascinated by fire, the imagery of it. But number two, kids just always like light shit on fire. Yeah. Yeah. My sister lit our living room on fire. My Danger. mom's little brother was killed by gasoline. Uh, by one of her older brother was killed. One of the older brothers before she was born was killed by another brother throwing gasoline over a wall and throwing a match and the little boy died of being burned. I, there's a lot of history of fire and trauma and just historically. Yeah. Right. But I want to, I want to get into this. You're clearly an inland empire, but before we go into the inland empire aspect, talk about for the writers who are watching about the Genesis of this book. Um, like how did this happen? Had you, did you already have some of the poems? How'd you find a publisher? Talk about that for a little bit, if you don't well, mind. I kind of took a break from working on my memoir. I had a rough couple of years, the last few years. My father died in 2020, and I was very close to my dad, and also spent a lot of time helping my parents as he was in his final months, and then helping my mom the last two years, losing her husband of 60 years. She's been lost. And teaching full-time through the pandemic. Students have really, they're going through so much. It's very difficult. So really was stepping up the, the caring for the students and being there for them. And I just wasn't able to really dig into my writing. You know, I got really disrupted. I'm, I'm sure there's other writers out there that had these things happen. Like you just got knocked off your, your focus point. And um, so I was trying to pull something out to where I felt like I was producing something, getting yeah. something accomplished. And I noticed that a lot of people were, um, you know, a lot of people, friends of mine were publishing books with this little press called Bamboo Dart. I kept seeing that everywhere. So I thought, why don't I, I'm just going to reach out to them. And they said, yeah, we'll publish your book. So it was really fun working with them and 
Um, Mark amazing. Givens and Dennis Kalachi, and Dennis yeah. is coming on the and podcast the whole, next week. The whole, yeah. like, you know, um, record look and collaborating on the cover with them. Talk about that, so, how that happened. Well, to show that there was destruction and devastation in the Dome Fire, which burned during August 2020. Um, was in the that the Wrightwood area? Or? No, that's way on the East Mojave Desert. Okay. Okay. So that's the core theme. The Dome Fire was the big one. Um, the 43,000 acre that, that was once wow. the largest Joshua tree forest in the world. And now it's like crispy critter, just crisp, you know, burnt matchstick standing out there. Wow. And um, I watched that and I was so distraught. Everybody was, but there were other deeper issues to why that fire got so big. It wasn't just climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of human, it was kind of like a reveal of the, the folly of the human to not have the resources for that fire. Um, California relies on inmate crews and they were all, many of them were locked down because of COVID. Oh, I didn't know that. How they interesting. They didn't have resources. And um, I've actually worked on fires in that area in the past. So I'm like, I know that area. I'm like, why don't they just get my old helicopter out there from Apple Valley? Yeah. Why is the helicopter? Because the helicopter was um, already assigned to fires in Northern California that were burning. Yeah. So, um, and the way this was portrayed in the media was just, oh my God, climate change, the end of the world. And I'm like, you know, I have to counter that narrative. I know I'm hearing from fire friends. There's other factors that went into that. Um, and I'm not trying to blame anybody. Right, right, right. But it's interesting to have someone that's in the yeah. field break yeah. it down yeah. what happened, how that fire raged, yeah. why there wasn't the resources it was, to hide it. If we had not been in the middle of a pandemic, if there had not been other fires burning there's a good chance that fire would have been very small mm. and we never even would have heard about it. Yeah. So. And that yeah. intersection with criminal justice or yeah, injustice. Yeah, we're using all the inmates and they're making, you know, $5 a day. Not only that, they're well, putting their lives at risk. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it used to be very hard to get into fire camp, but when they passed what's called AB 109 in California and they started transitioning a lot of people to jail instead of prisons, right. very serious cases started going to fire camp. Yeah. And these people would do anything right. to go there because yeah, they course. were looking at 10 or 15 years and they got their yeah. thing slashed and, um, in half. You get you get double time in fire camp. Now you probably get two thirds time in fire camp. Yeah. Because so everyone gets double time. now. There's a yeah. lot of questions about that whole enterprise. The ethics of it. And right. I think um, there are actually two books and one of them's right here. I just got a copy of it. Oh, great. Um, they've been published recently, which are focused on inmate women fire crews. Oh, I got to, I got to read and I actually these. know at least one of the women that was in the, cause I interviewed her for my project. Um, so it's good to see that, that there is becoming more exposure um, through published books. But anyway, I wanted to give some homage to what happened out there. It just, to most people, it's just the middle of the desert. And to me, that's yeah. like my home. That's, that's where I have stories. And, you know, that's, where my life has been lived. So to me, it's a very rich um, embodied landscape that deserved to have a voice and a story behind it. So I kind of wove a lot of my own things into that, the layers of that. So I just wanted the dome fire region to feel like somebody cared about it. Yeah. Beautifully done. I know other people care. I'm not saying they don't, but um, just wanted to bring it front and center. And in a small way, this is kind of a part of my my larger fire on the Mojave project, which is going to be a book eventually. I have written pieces um, working with the University of Washington Press to publish it. Great. So, um, and 
as I said, getting sidetracked in the pandemic um, in such a large way for so long. This book was just a nice little project to focus on. Yeah, and I think that could really that would really resonate with a lot of people watching because, as Frances says, she can relate as a teacher the disruption. Yeah. Um, for that. me, it was the opposite. I finally got to work from home for the first yeah, time in my life, and I was able to focus more, and I couldn't go anywhere to shows, so I got really productive. But I think, on the yeah. other hand, I got really insulated and overworked, and I actually got really sick. Um, after as a result let's talk about this like I said you're an IE girl like me you're my first workshop leader that I ever took in Riverside you teach in the in the desert talk to us about what being an Inland Empire girl is or gal or woman however you want to say it person and and how it influences your work like first of all is part of your job as a writer from the Inland Empire that claims her heritage here is it to You know, because I've done presentations where we talk about how do you get rid of the stigma of San Bernardino? And my argument is you claim it and you celebrate it, right? You don't let Joan Gideon talk trash. Or if you do let her talk trash, you talk trash back. Or you kind of Mm -hmm. try to subvert what people see as the IE, San Bernardino, Fontucky, Unterrible. I know every slur. Absolutely. Well, and I can, we can only say them because we're from here. Don't talk about my mama. You know? I felt that stigma very heavily growing up and we left the IE. It's kind of like the feeling with my dad was kind of like we got out of there, you know? Yeah. And he actually had a job in Victorville. We didn't just leave because of urban flight, but there's a very palpable sense of like, you know, that's a place people want to leave and never look back. I have many friends who left the IE as young adults, kids I knew when I was a kid and they're like, we just got the hell out. It was so bad there. And so I felt very, um, actually when Malcolm Margolin came down to do the first Inlandia anthology and really like kind of put his weight with heyday books behind Mm. the region and tried to reach out and gather people and bring writers into the fold. That was a very generous act he did because he helped a lot of people connect who felt isolated. And and you had one, you had the first anthology, you edited it. No place for your parents. Yeah. They asked me to, um, help them, you know, bring in some voices that were not acknowledged in that first anthology. And then I contributed some work and I remember just feeling so validated, you know, it's like, and you know, I'm not saying that Malcolm is the only person who could have done that, but it was definitely ignited again, a spark, a positive fire, a good fire to help really start to put our region on the map and to honor our place and our writers. And yeah. we've come a long way. I mean, um, yeah. we just, you and I performed at an Atlantia event on Sunday. Yeah. And, and look um, at it now. I was like, God, when I, when I was, I was here when it started, and there was only a few people. Yeah. Look at like, look how the um, trees have grown, you know, little seeds that were planted. I mean, it's mind blowing for me. Like when I look around, like, I can't even believe there's grown so much. And there's so many people that are part of this. So, yeah. you know, I don't feel bad about being from the IE. I was also really astonished, you know, unfortunately, when the terrorist attack happened in San Bernardino. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. Everybody in the world knows San Bernardino now. We're yeah. on the map. And yeah, like you said, you own it. Like, yeah. I just don't care what anybody thinks. I, you have to be true to who you are and where you're from. A hundred percent. You know, and I, I may not have been born here, writing. but I. I self-claim being an IE girl. I was yeah, born in Montana. Still, yeah. There's kind of an edge. Juan Felipe Herrera, the great poet who was at UCR mm-hmm. for some years, 
he was always saying, you know, the people here are like a little wild. It's very different. There's a really amazing diversity of people. And I love that about the IE. Like my childhood there in Rialto and San Bernardino, we had so many people from different backgrounds and ethnicities. And like, I've never experienced that anywhere else. Everything else feels segregated. A hundred percent. It's very, very inclusive, very diverse. Like it's my very community in uh, San Bernardino that I live in, um, which I'm privileged to live in. I love my community. We're kind of by Glen Helen park in between DeVore mm-hmm. and Fontana. Okay. And, um, my community is almost one third black, one third Mexican, one third white and Asian. Yeah. And so, I mean, you don't get that anywhere else. No, you don't. The IE is extremely diverse. And I've, I really value that, especially as I've lived in other places, other mm-hmm. states and see how much it's not that way. So it's my, very unique. It's very unique in that way. I have a funny story. So my husband went to dental school in San Francisco and we were going to buy a house um, in Redwood City, which is over the water, kind of by Marin. And back then you could get a house for like 400,000 out there. We'd be millionaires if we would have bought it. But we went to Sausalito. I've never seen a wider place in my life. And we were literally like Mm -hmm. the, the exotic people walking or non-literally figuratively, the exotic people walking around and people were like staring at us. And we're like, Um, this is weird. We're like, we can't live here. (laughs) Right. You don't even notice that segregation thing. If you grow up in the IE or live there when you're a kid, you just know, think that everything is very um, diverse and you yeah. go other places and it's just shocking. Like even the Coachella Valley has, oh, yeah. where I live, it's very segregated. Yeah. And I remember moving here and being very shocked by that. I mean, not surprised, but just like, wow, it's so, so visible here how deeply segregated racially it is. Yeah. Um, just going back really quick. Uh, you read, did you read escape route when you did your reading? Right I now? did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk about that. You blend uh, in all of your poems. I would um, say they're hybrid in a way you blend personal memoir, political, environmental, um, escape route is a very personal poem. It talks about a desk in your parents' garage. It talks about stories that you want your daughter to inherit. It talks about your daughter's father, um, shot and killed his best friend. He went to prison, sentenced to life in prison, working on fire camp crews, which I find very interesting and almost like this weird, um, you know, mirroring that you use there. What made you want to include such a personal poem that talks about really personal hard stuff? I wrote a book of poems some years ago and I self-published it and I showed it to Malcolm Argolin and he read it because he reads everything you give him. Mm-hmm. gave it back he's like oh, that's really really rough poems that's so like intense and I remember being yeah. really shocked I'm like well that's just my life mm. I'm writing about what I've experienced so that poem was one of the poems that was in there wow and there yeah it's, it seems very simple but it's very profound there's a lot packed in there oh yeah and I met my daughter's father on the fire crew that's where I met him for the where I worked mm-hmm. for the Bureau of Land Management so, and then he went on when he went to prison for killing his best friend. He oh was God. in one of the inmate crews up in Susanville. So that's why he was still on, kept doing that work as a young adult. And um, I like to tie in the idea of women going through domestic violence, having that descend on you and make you feel trapped. And that's very similar to when you're on a wildfire. There's an important, the 10 rules of firefighting, always know your escape route. 
So when you're cutting fire line, working out in the wildfire zone, you have to know how to get out of there if something goes wrong at all times. Like, how are we going to get out of here? Okay, we're going to go that way. There's, we cut fire line, we're going to go up the ridge. So my sense was that many women came back to womanhood and negotiating the world as a woman. I mean, it's just a fact. We have to think this way. Most of us do. Yeah. What are you going to do if you're totally dependent on a man and you have no resources? People say to women, why don't you just leave? And that's such a loaded question. A lot of women that get stuck in domestic violence situations, as you, I'm sure you know, don't have money. They don't have a job. Right. Sometimes their own families are telling them, you know, just make it work. So the idea. And the odds of being killed if you leave are very high. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I was threatened with that. So trying to maneuver your safety and your children's safety by having an escape route is so important. You know, have your own money, have somewhere safe to go. Um, And I mean, I'm not saying this is a good thing that women have to do, but, and I know that um, a lot of women just can't leave because they don't have the ability or the wherewithal to have that escape route. So that's kind of, yeah. What it reminds point. me of that memoir um, that was made into a movie by Stephanie land uh, made. And there's this scene where she's living with her boyfriend and this tra- or her husband in a trailer and um, she's sinking into the couch and it's a metaphor for yep. she, she's sinking into her right. world. She yeah. can't leave. She can't leave. Yeah. And that image of domestic violence and and mirroring it with your work on the fire crew and having to have all these safety plans yeah and we call them safety plans in criminal justice too okay so So you're also fighting like hell you're cutting fire line you know you're you're in a race against the flames Mm. there's a lot of overlap between surviving domestic violence and negotiating it and fighting fire fighting wildfire and then the other part of that was when you've had such a tragic stuff stain your life when you're a parent and you pull out of it, you know, there's scars, there's trauma. Yeah. So how do you, how do you direct your daughter, young daughter through that and find the positive? Mm. And that's not an easy task, you know, like, okay, we have these horrible memories, but we also have to find the beauty in like who we are and what we do. And, you know, how do we create our family stories in a way that isn't, an added trauma or you know what I mean? Like, no. And I see that in this book because um, I had coffee with Mark Givens, one of your publishers when this book first came out and I was telling him, despite that this book talks a lot about so much devastation and trauma to both people and, and things and the environment, it's, it actually, there's a very sense of hope. There's some grief here, obviously, but there's also a sense of hope. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to weave in is even when you look at places in the desert that are desecrated by fire or human influences, and there's more and more of this, every time I go out, I see people are stealing petroglyphs or vandalizing them. Mm -hmm. It's just mind blowing, the staggering, the scope of it, how fast it's happening. But then you also say, look, there's beauty and you have to really pull that out because what else do we have? You know, we have to find something hopeful and beautiful and in the mother-daughter continuum, that's essential. Like, yeah. we have to give our next generation's hope. And I think that's a really big struggle, especially right now. Kids are really struggling because the pandemic has really put them into mental health spirals. We're all hearing about it, right? Like, kids are behind in school. They don't know how to act in school. They're depressed. 
So I think I was trying to talk about how I've done that as a parent for my daughter yeah. and for myself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so what advice do you have for other writers as far as writing what you know, translating to whatever, translating what you know to whatever genre you're writing in, whether it be poetry, memoir, hybrid essays, um, like what advice do you have as both a professor and a writer yourself for people who are trying to kind of take that thread? Because I think the hardest thing about writing is finding the thread to make this into a literary project, right? We can sure. all write our stories, blah, 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 blah. But how do you make it into art? Like how did, like, what is it? Do you go to a creative space? Do you write in the morning? What's your writing process to find that inner muse? Me, I write at five in the morning. It's the only time I can write. Can't write any other time of the day unless it's a Saturday. But if it's a weekday, five to six is four to 30 to six is my sweet spot. What's your process to kind of tap into the inner consciousness, the subconscious, sure. get into um, that higher place in your head, and your heart where you're kind of just creating? That's a very, very difficult question. Um, part of my challenge is that, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a daughter, I have four grandchildren. I have a mm. lot of people that I sort of tend. And the last few years, there's been a lot more of that. So that both feeds it, but it takes away from it. You know, like I'm yeah. busy. Again, I'm tired after being with all the grandkids. I don't, I have no energy to write. I'm just like flopped out. So um, I don't have a schedule. I, okay. I think, um, I get inspired by, I know that my time spent in the desert, which I do a lot of just being out in the desert, that really, really inspires me because mm. everything's laid out like in a, in a story or poem mm -hmm. out there. And it also frees me up as I'm walking. My mind gets freed up from all the jangle of whatever. And I also feel a lot of inspiration from reading um, good writing. So when I feel kind of like I'm all at, like right now, I'm just in a really, I'm not writing very much. I have a bunch of projects I'm kind of hemming away at, picking away at, working on. But I don't feel like I'm being super productive knocking out pages. Mm -hmm. um, no, and I like that because it's really not about realistic. anyone's, what works for anyone but themselves. So to tell people, you may not have to have a schedule if you can do a right. schedule. Well, I would like to okay. have a schedule. I have like no schedule in my life. That's yeah. how crazy everything is. Yeah. Um but I think a schedule is a really good idea because you are going to get more writing done. Probably if you say it's like a job, I'm going to do this from, you know, 9am to one, but I don't, I don't really know when I work best. I just sort of go in and out of it. I do a lot of journaling. I, I have little projects like things that are due to get published. So I'll just work on that next week. Um, yeah, I, and I would say... I uh, wish I had a better schedule. I just no, I, I have this to say. Let go of the perfectionism. Let go of that idea as a woman that you got to do everything for everyone and that your house has to be clean. Well, my house isn't clean. Mine isn't. I let go of that right People long. ask, how do you write? I'm like, my husband cooks. I don't cook. I order nice. if, if it's my day. Yeah. I order in or yeah, I bring I home that. food. Like I brought home like Burger King tonight because I'm literally getting off at 435, driving home. I'm home yeah. at 545. Like... I'm eating in the cars because right. I know I'm not going to have time. To, and that's okay. Not everyone is willing to eat that yeah. fast food or something. But for me, I know what works for me. And so like, oh, I got to clean my bathroom this week. And that's why I could have made myself do it this week. I just don't put pressure on myself. Yeah, to have let's this get perfect the writing home. done. 
get, get the, the writing, writing done. done first. The writing is way more important than any of that other stuff, except if you have kids or other family. Yeah, careful, that's different. Yeah, you know, you have to sort of can't just like tell them I'll see you next year. I'm writing a book, <laughs> but the other stuff, you know, the food, the cooking, just let that go. And I know this is another universal issue: is that most women feel so much pressure to be perfect, to have the perfect kids, to do everything for everybody. And it's so hard to give ourselves permission to sort of let that go. It's so, and most women have this so baked into our you know, conditioning. Yeah. Or we don't even know we're, we're, we're locked into that much more than men, much you know, more than men. Writing? What do you mean? You're just hanging out writing. Like the guy's like, of course I deserve to write. And the women's like, I don't know if I take an hour to myself, I should be doing something. I should be I, taking care of people or cleaning the kitchen. Yeah. So it's, it's an ongoing struggle and I don't care who you are, whether you have kids or don't have kids or married or not, it's, there's going to be layers of that coming on yeah. us as women. Yeah. I mean, even if, you're, even if your partner is evolved, you know, my husband's very evolved. Um, it's hard. He does way more than I do in the house. I have to admit That's that. Lucky. But, you know, we're two wage earner families. So we have a lot of privilege. Yeah. We can, you know, if the house gets really yeah. bad, I can have a housekeeper come in or we have a gardener. We don't have to mow our own lawn. So part of this is economic privilege. But a lot of it is just me saying, you know, my house isn't going to be perfect. Yeah, what are your priorities? What's going to what's going to yeah. be around when you're not here anymore? Your books or your house was clean. Who cares? And nobody cares about the house. Right? Well, I mean, sometimes I'll tell my family, you just can't come over. The house is a wreck. Or go to their house. You go to yeah. Their house. Or sometimes yeah, what I'll do is invite my family over so I have to clean the house. And then I'll do that. And like I focus on it when I do it. But look, I want to say this. Um, and I want to get to this before we talk about what's next on your horizon. And then I want you to read a, another poem. Um, talk about, and I love your photography, how photographs play i mean look at this they're just beautiful yeah and, like, i drive through there a lot to visit my daughter in southern utah you have to do i, I usually drive through the east mojave preserve and it goes right through the burn zone of the dome fire so this, um this picture the photos. caption on it which is almost yeah. a poem in itself which soothing, uh the on page 26 soothing the feverish brows of forsaken landscapes to help cool them down shovel stir yeah, that's um, that the, that's your line from one of my poems. Wow, beautiful! Yeah. This poem what did... you, do. you have to cool the cool the land down so it doesn't keep burning. Um, yeah, a lot of the trees—they're the like ghosts because they're still standing. the The trunks are still there. They're going to be there for decades. Wow, I've seen areas that have burned in Joshua Tree National Park thirty-five years ago, and the soot is still on the Joshua trees, like. Wow. They don't decay because the the environment's so dry. So yeah. it's not like it just burned and it's over. That stuff is how it looks now. That's yeah. what it's going to be for a long time. I think your book is so important for that reason. You're bearing witness. You're memorializing. Yeah. 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 The devastation. Yeah. It is an elegy. You know, it's it's a traumatic loss. Yeah. Like so much else in my book, right? Yeah. Like all these pictures are so beautiful. And I love how Mark um, integrated them. I think they're perfectly done. They're all well, so Well, I asked beautiful. them, you know, that's another thing. If you're trying to get a book published and you're working with, obviously try to find the coolest people you can work with, but also give them your ideas. And they were very open to the idea of putting pictures in. Yeah. And it really gave a lot of dimension to the, you know, and I, I just want to tell. I don't right. think it would be the same book it. without these 
pictures. I really don't think. Really? You know? I'm glad you like them. Yeah. because I just sort of felt like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to have some of those pictures. And I just, I had the pictures on my phone from my last drive through there. Yeah. And there's my daughter and I. Oh, I love this picture. We went back to look at a fire that I worked on before she was born up in the wow. San Bernardino Mountains. What year is this picture from? Um, let's see. How old is my daughter? Oh, Tara. Probably about 1992. Wow. So we, I said, what does that fire look like that I, the rattlesnake fire in the San Bernardino mountains? I worked on it. So I said, I'm going to, let's try back up there. I want to see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So see all when the When mother, um, the, that heading on it, just so everyone can. What does it hear. say? When we mother our tormented landscapes. Oh, now that's yeah. deep. How do we, um. How do I pull my daughter out of the trauma she experienced from her abusive father? You know, she suffered from that too. Yeah. How do I negotiate that for her? Wow. How do we build a beautiful life together after that happened? Right. Yeah. And yeah. I like to think, I hope we did. I mean, Oh, I have you did. I know how devoted of a mother you are. I should have done this. I messed up, but I see my daughter with her four children and she's, married her high school sweetheart and they're like young adults who actually own a house and wow. like they have their you know what together you know i i didn't have my so i think i must have done something i must have done a fairly good job you right you did you did well i just want to do a quick shout out and then i want you to read another poem or another Great. two poems i want to shout out next week we have dennis kalachi on everyone yeah. um yeah. Musician, writer extraordinaire. He has this book. He has a book called The Hundred Cassettes. Um, and we're going to talk about his books, but we're going to, he's really going to talk about his latest book, Lost Reflections, which he's doing little film trailers for that are beautiful. Nice. And I just love the loneliness in the landscape of this work that he's doing. These, um, I guess I call them um, short pieces, uh, fiction, um, little flash, a little, a little, um, I don't think they're memoir, but they're, they all have a, an intersection. And I wanted to say that um, next week, next Wednesday, we are starting an hour late. Um, we're going to start at 8 p.m. Uh, we had a little conflict with the time, so we're going to start an hour later. So next week on May 17th, we're going to start at 8 p.m., okay? So come watch us live and watch me interview uh, Dennis Kalachi, and I'm going to see if he'll do a song, too. Um so this, read another poem. Well, first tell people who are watching what's next on your horizon, where they can take a class with you, where they could see you read. I think you have a reading coming up at a brewery. Is that right? Yeah. And you're going to be in the reading too, I believe. I might be there. Yeah. I'm at least going to try to like, um, like say. May 28th in San Dimas. So perhaps you could have, Alan could give a little nod or mention it. Yeah. Um, I had there, they made a flyer for it. So it's going to be a reading at a brewery. And then High point. I yeah. think that um, Dennis and Alan, their band, they're going to perform. So there's oh. going to be some music also live music. Great. So you really, you really got to be there. Right. Yeah. And it, that's going to start, I believe at 2 PM um, in May San Dimas, go to the life of gem Facebook page. If you want yeah. more information, I'll put the flyer up. I know it's on Alan Kalachi's page, so I'll grab it and I'll, I'll share it on my Life of Gem Facebook page after this. You can watch Ruth read live there. Um, are you teaching any workshops or anything yeah. in the next couple months? What I'm doing, well, right now I've been working with the Native American Land Conservancy to do on-site oh. workshops for Native American people from our region in the desert. Awesome. And that's really rewarding. Um, really enjoying doing that. I'm very honored. And I'm doing privately, I'm just starting this um, creating a little writing workshop for some incarcerated indigenous men who are in solid prison. 
Oh, wow. A friend of mine um, who has a family member who's incarcerated. So she's asked me to do this. Um, she's talking about how many books they're banning in prisons. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm really excited. I just sent them their first prompt. Awesome. I think there's going to be four or five indigenous Native American. Uh, my ex, you know, my ex, my daughter's father was an incarcerated Native American. Wow. She was the California penal system for some years and then in Denver. So um, I feel like it's sort of a personal issue in a way. Yeah. Thank you for raising those incarcerated voices yeah. up. I we'll mean, that's it. the one population. They're so oppressed and silenced. I know my twin um, used to work with prison education project. And I know in Landia, one of my goals is to um, help them facilitate okay. workshops Good. with incarcerated oh, yeah. and incarcerated impacted people. So, um, to lead us out. Thank you, Ruth, for coming on. You've been so gracious and beautiful. And I mean, just this book, I'm going to tell everyone, this is the deal of the century. After the Dumb Fire with Ruth Nolan by Bamboo Dart. And actually, for people who are watching this live or not live, because I'm going to post this and promote it later so people can watch it not live. Um, if you share the video, uh, I'll do a drawing for a copy of Ruth's book, After the Dome Fire. Um, and so lead us out with a couple poems, if you don't mind. Absolutely. And I want to thank you for coming on. Yes, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. And thank Aww. you for all that you're doing. Thank you. You know, you're doing a lot for a lot of people so in your work as an attorney and just through your events and doing your podcast. So. I appreciate that. Give you a hand. So uh, yay. Okay. I know it's a lot of work, so you're doing a lot of great things. Um, so this is um, teaching my daughter to put out fire. And this is a true story. It isn't your typical scenario. A young mother who worked seven years ago as a wildland firefighter, driving her Jeep and four-wheel drive up 3 and 14, the back road to Big Bear. With her daughter, five years old, this is a picture to reach the rattlesnake fire burn zone. The very first fire she ever fought in the San Bernardino mountains. This is another July day, just like that one. The mother wants to see for herself how the mangled landscape looks today. What remains of the Joshua and pinion trees, if anything. What bird sounds, if any, filter now through the air, the barren air. What reference points to negotiate by without the Jeffrey Pines or Live Oak, without the juniper, she worked on this fire and she watched it all burn away. Huge boulder scatter revealing itself. Ominous ghost whales rising from the heavy smoke. An eerie scene. She wants to reassess and look for signs of life today. Now that so much has been taken away. One careless toss of a cigarette. One careless finger on a trigger. A father locked away, his best friend dead. Some things have been destroyed forever. Some things have been saved. Something's new and stranger growing in this place. Are there birds, ravens, western jay? Can we find mountain wildflowers suckling the dark dirt? Maybe a few deer negotiating their way across a moonscape. Moonscape on their way to a small spring, if anything is still there. Jackrabbits hopping in and out of the slowly dying and grotesquely regrowing Joshua trees. And before they reach the lonely place, they stop at an empty campground so the daughter can run and play. And her daughter spots at first a wisp of smoke, tickled by the light wind and rising. A careless camper, a campfire not put out. The mother reaches for her army shovel and hands her daughter a bottle of water. We have work to do. This is how you put out a fire before it has a chance to erupt and destroy things. 
Look for the small things, a wisp of sultry smoke, a gleam of orange eye, a seduction of tiny flame. Sprinkle water on it, stir it up. This is where it starts. This is where it will stop. Nothing more will burn here today until or unless we say it will. Oh, wow. You know what's- My daughter still remembers that. She still remembers that, which I'm, go ahead. I got goosebumps because um, I read your book two or three times and I missed that part about one careless finger on a trigger. Did you? I did. Well, it's kind of just heard you in there. You know, it's very subtle. Yeah. And then so, I connected it with the best friend and that your ex-husband and him going to prison. And it's almost like this meditation on grief. What have we lost? Right. Yeah. But we have a chance now to, to stop something also very meaningful from being lost. Okay. Like women, mother, daughter, whoever we have, we have some empowerment to like, negotiate these things how do we negotiate that's what really matters that's what matters and we'll we'll end on that note thank you so much thank you for coming on thank you for writing your beautiful book everyone get her book after the dome fire get this book after the dome fire bamboo dark press i put the link in the comments and also share it on the life of gem facebook page thank you thank you ruth you have a great night bye everyone thanks for watching thanks francis for all your good comments thanks francis (laughs) bye-bye